Moving into our next panel, which will explore the role of civil society in Bangladesh's miracle, I'd now like to introduce the moderator of this panel, Borye Lungram, who will be moderating the panel. Ambassador Borye Lungram has devoted his professional life to Asia. In 1970, he joined the Swedish International De uh, Development Agency, or CEDA, as a regional economist for Asia. He aided in designing a development cooperation program supporting newly independent Bangladesh, making his first visit to Dhaka in February of 1972. The following year, he was assigned to open a CETA office in Bangladesh, serving there until mid-1975. In the mid-1980s, he was put in charge of CETA's operations in Asia and became the agency's deputy director general, making frequent visits to Bangladesh. Borye Lugram later became Swedish ambassador to Vietnam head of the Asia Department of the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs and Swedish Ambassador to China from 2002 to 2006. Currently, Ambassador Lundgren is an associate of the Asia Center at Harvard University and the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. He holds his PhD in political science and has written extensively on China. At present, he is co-editing a book on contemporary Vietnam. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Jensi. And thank you, Marty, also for being such a wonderful organizer. Uh, and I must say, I feel very honored, uh, as you can imagine, to, to be invited uh, and also impressed by the discussions so far yesterday as well as today. And you have added a lot of not only insights, but also uh, uh, gone far beyond celebrations, which I think is, is uh, in truth, the true spirit. In a minute, I will introduce the distinguished speakers, and I will ask you to do it themselves, basically. But allow me first to say a few more words uh, about myself and uh, how I got uh, into Bangladesh uh, 50 years ago, almost, and try, try to convey a bit of the of the flavor uh, already uh, touched upon by Chelsea. Um, I did, uh, as Chelsea mentioned, join CEDA in the uh, 70 as a regional economist for Asia. And my first major task became Bangladesh, or rather the, the, the whole the, the war and the conflict that emerged. And uh, Sweden took a very clear stand in support of, of independent Bangladesh. We already had a major program in Pakistan, mainly in actually in East Pakistan. Uh, family planning, vocational training, Kaptai and, and grain stories, I remember in Narangan. Uh, but at a, now, when independence came, uh, we made a complete shift in support of, of, of Bangladesh. Uh, and my main, main, main task was to sort this out and to design, work this on designing a program. And I was sent to Dhaka in February of 72, that is two months after the war. So I, in order to get there, I, I, I was sitting on, on, the, on the floor of a Red Cross uh, carrier from, from Calcutta. Uh, and you can imagine the situation uh, that was prevailing then. But we were so enormously well received as a delegation by the new planning commission. Uh, by uh, Ramon Saban, Nurul Islam, Musharraf Hussein, Saidu Samwan, they were all full of optimism and vision. Uh, so it was for me a, a wonderful experience. Uh, the following year, I was posted, as mentioned, to, to Dhaka as to open a CEDA office with my wife, who then started to work for Bangla Path. So a lifelong friendship emerged with uh, Rahman, Runak, uh, uh, Abed, Lincoln, and Marty, Richard Cash, uh, George Seidenstein, a dear absent friend. They were all great inspiration for me as a young person. And of course, when I first arrived two months after the war, the country was facing an enormously acute situation with millions of refugees returning from India. Uh, and as the country was recovering the devastating floods and famine of 1974. Needless to say, all this made lasting impressions on me. The title of this session is The Role of Civil Society in Bangladesh Miracle. As we learned yesterday, Bangladesh developments has in many ways been remarkable. At the time of the independence, as was mentioned, Bangladesh was one of the poorest countries in the world, 75 million people, life expectancy of 46. No basket case, but highly dependent on food aid. Today, more than 150 million inhabitants able to feed itself as a country 
with life expectancy at 73 for women, seven for men. Successfully, not least when it comes to population policy and thereby creating what has been referred to as the, uh, the demographic dividend, where we have seen microfinance emerge and so many very innovative programs. And we have seen rapid economic development. This is all remarkable, but even more so, I think, is the role played by NGOs. And that justified uh, the word miracle, I think. And the circumstances that has been far from easy as regards state capacity, governance, corruption, human rights violations, fragile democracy, times of military coup and martial law, we, we have seen major developments and a major role played by NGOs. How has this been possible? Crucial thing has been the resilience and capacity of people to cope. And turning from fatalistic to inspirational, as Zillow Rahman said yesterday, from fatalistic to aspirational. But how did it happen? How was that space created and, and protected and developed? Which are the challenges waiting to be addressed today? The challenges are, as we know, very far from over. Yes, the consequence of climate change had just began to be seen. So innovations has got to remain uh, crucial, of crucial importance. To shed light on all this, we have three eminent panelists representing three generations of Bangladesh dynamic civil society. Uh, and I will present them very briefly and then ask them to, to present themselves and their work. First, we have uh, Dr. Savrula Chaudhuri. Glad to see you, Savrula. Um, founder, as you know, of Golakasta Kandra, a pioneer well known to almost all of us. Golakasta Kandra established already in 72, and one of, hence one of the oldest NGOs in, in Bangladesh. Safrula has uh, received uh, numerous international recognitions, but I'm today particularly proud of the fact that you have received uh, the Right Livelihood Award, uh, sort of Swedish alternative uh, Nobel Prize. Wonderful. Uh, Shamaran Abid, uh, of Brack, a lawyer by training, is a senior director of Brack's microfinance and ultra poor, poor graduation program. Brack was also founded in 72 by Shamaran's late father, a beloved friend of all of us. And as you know, Brack is often regarded as the most successful NGO in the world. Then we have the third generation, uh, Mama Silu, uh, a feminist activist, founder and director of Kota, focused on tackling the culture of gender-based violence, which has been such an important subject uh, already today. So now we'd like to turn to the, to the three uh, uh, participants and ask them to, uh, to uh, introduce themselves and their programs, speaking for three to four minutes. And I start with uh, Safrula, of course. Please, Safrula, the floor, the, the, the screen is yours. Uh, well, thank you. Probably you've forgotten the, my first international award was given by Swedish Youth Peace Prize. Yeah, that's We true. have just started work. Yes, you are here in Bangladesh at that time. It was a very inspirational. And I think really you know, about Ganeshastra, nothing to We are involved in the freedom struggle of Bangladesh. Freedom, free, the, the war, most things are bad, but war has got one thing. It forced people for imagination, innovative programs, for survival, they have to do that. The war has got the most important impact on women. Women suffer most, but women also, it opens the door for opportunity for women. Some of the, the, the destruction, rigorosity that imposes by the society, it breaks up, especially in a Muslim society. The Bangladesh has become over 90% are Muslim, Conservative, though we are not as conservative as the Pakistan or Iran, but it is a conservative society. Maybe one reason we are all converting Muslims. So we inherit 
some of the cultural heritage, at least in our mind, uh, we, we inherit them. But the opportunity they, when the, all the Muslims, we are all in prison women, in the families, it has been broken. That this this operation by Pakistanis and the really for survival, the 10 million people have to leave the country. So they, they have to really open up. So first encounter to be made when we wanted in the refugee camps, as you will know that there's a large number of deaths and others. And also this war was a bit unequal because Pakistan, uh, US and China did not support it. And India was not very efficient in managing these 10 million refugees. As a result, there are more deaths in the camps. Healthcare was lacking, food was not enough, educated food, housing was not there. Few indulges, few international agencies like Oxfam's. And so that is it. Under the circumstances, we have to look for how do we survive. When I came out of England, and the only time the freedom struggle, they are asking for bullets and bullets, guns and bullets. But soon they realize they also need the health care. Pregnant women who, who look up have been raped or normally pregnant, and they have the food situation, infant, such a high infant mortality. So at that time, it forced us, as we are not allowed to bring the British nurses, though our leader, the commanding chief, General Ahmed Osmani, who himself was wounded during the Second World War, uh, was treated by British nurses. He was very fond of, and he was very appreciative. So he said, if some volunteers you get, bring it. But our Prime Minister, Tajuddin Ahmed, said war is not always a fair game. So if something goes wrong, there will be bad reparation, bad reporting. No, 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 Zafrullah, you cannot bring any foreigners in this disaster. So that has forced us to look around. And there I saw thousands of young women are sitting in the refugee camps. Everybody wants to become, to join the guerrilla fight, but our people are not. So there we picked up a few hundreds. They are so clever. This is the first time I realized women are much cleverer than men. Of course, now I realize the reason for survival reasons. They have to then also I look back in, in England. My colleague, the lady doctor, has got much difficult life than I had, even though I am not a white, I am not a, lo a local person. I had more opportunities than a British girl. So, but they had that they had to they are hard worker. So these younger women. With two to four weeks training, we created a big hospital, 480-bedded hospitals. So that is the really, I think, the beginning of Bangladesh miracle. That really forced all our leaders and others to see the opportunity exist within the women. I, I think really that is one thing we must we must remember. But always it happens, even in Europe, when the Second World War, British women were allowed to participate. As soon as the war is ended, there's a go back, factories and other. So from that lesson, I think really our story of Bangladesh miracle story begins. At the same time, our participants of this, of the freedom struggle, mostly were young people. Young people are always, they, they are willing to open, they are willing to discuss and debate. That is why in the previous year, you see, we insisted that women, the first women's commission was happening in Ziaul Rahman's time when I'm a man, but I was a member. But my conviction of their supportive work, so these sorts of things really begin. Uh, we have now really our, now we realize that allowing the women to participate, to come out in public, it helps us economically. It helps the development of our children. It helps the development of the countries, movement and other. In 1972, you may also recall that to give the vaccine, people used to run away. We try to find out what is the reason. Then we realize 
ours, they come from a different town and other. We said, well, recruit the women, recruit the girl, who can enter anybody's house. Anybody's house, sit down and walk or talk and other. That is the one reason. You see, Bangladesh, really, for, for vaccination, even in Europe, especially England and America, you have to convince people that they do vex. But in Bangladesh, you don't. They, you just announce a date, they tell their mother uh, are coming with the child in their arm and ready for the for, for the jab. So these, these are the our we also NGOs. That's what happens. That freedom has made like Abedwai and other. They said we have to build the country. They become the world's largest. Day. We said we have to create the healthcare. These then our Bangabandhu said Zafula built hospital in Dhaka. I said, no, that is the wrong thing. You have to start from the village, a village. So like they, these are the, our contributions. And now NGOs, they made a big contribution and like they're spreading the gospel, spreading the gospel of development. And really that continues. But I also want to say we have got failures. We are failures. What? Our economy is very much dependent on the government's since the women and our uh, our, our workers, migrant workers, and uh, we have not looked up to them well. Still, we have got that really developing status, but I am worried that unless other facilities we seriously develop, then we have got... Uh, and last point I want to make and stop here. Uh, like uh, in one side, we have got no hunger. As you remember, 74, we had a famine. So many people died, though we had got enough food. Amartya Sen says, we, we, we produce most, but we did not distribute properly. I'm seeing a bit of audit. Recently, US foodie, they have mentioned two things. This year, we have got a 1 million tons shortage of rice, 6.5 million tons of wheat. So these are the things we have to look after. If we cannot manage this, who knows that we can hear the still the sounds of famine and other disparity has increased. Our we are getting food, but it's not educate food. That's why we are the one nation have not grown much. We are still shorter and other equal opportunity is not is not there. So this is now all you know though our previous is it. I see there's a stagnation in the women's development. I see serious stagnation in the area. It is our contribution, Connors to made this well at that union council meetings. It is our proposal, our push that they, 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 are, they have got more members, but they are not giving enough responsibility. So women cannot show their, show their ears. So these are the things I think I stop here maybe. And a few other things that might be authentic. Uh, and of course, we will return to some of these questions later on. But now we'll ask Shamran, please, to make a brief presentation of yourself and Brock, the challenges that you would like to highlight. Yeah, thank you very much, Boye. I hope you can all hear me. Um, uh, I'm Shamran. I'm, uh, I'm at BRAC. I manage BRAC's work in financial services and also our, our work on ultra poverty. Uh, I won't say very much about BRAC. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's at least in development circles, it's fairly well known. It's a large development organization founded in Bangladesh and now working in, I think, 11 countries. Uh, my work at BRAC mostly focuses on financial services and specific, specifically in that microfinance. We are one of the largest microfinance providers globally and the largest in Bangladesh. But I also focus a lot on, on issues of extreme poverty. Uh, and in that, uh, we focus a lot on the graduation approach, which is a which is a, a, a program we developed about 20 years ago. Which, uh, over this over the last 20 years, has become one of the most effective ways to to pull to help pull the poorest people in the world out of out of extreme poverty. So that's the work I do. Before I joined BRAC in 2009, I was a journalist for a couple of years, for three years. Uh, and before that, I was trained as, a, as an economist in the U.S. and a lawyer in the U.K., but I didn't, I didn't spend a day practicing law. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a real honor to be part of this panel. Um, I think this, is, this has been a 
two days of amazing conversations. And I think to follow the last panel, which was incredible, I think, you know, we have a hard act to follow. Um, but it's, it's great to be able to talk about Bangladesh's uh, development miracle. Um, I, I should say, I, I would echo Dr. Chaudhary that there is a long way to go. So I, I don't think we should assume with the word miracle that we've solved all our problems. I think there are several instances where we have a lot of work left to do. I think we've, we've you know, Dr. Chaudhary has already spoken about, uh, you know, women's, you know, development, gen, gen, the issue of gender rights and, and gender equality is a big one. There are others as well. Uh, but but what we have achieved as, as one of the poorest, if not the poorest country in 1971, 72, when we gained independence, uh, what we've achieved in the last five decades, being one of the most densely populated countries in the world with really no real natural resources to speak of in the traditional sense has been miraculous. And, and obviously as, as the, um, um, as the title of this panel suggests, there has been a big role uh, played by the civil society organizations and civil society at large, not only CSOs, but the civil society at large. And I'll, I'll be happy to get into that in this conversation. So, so thank you very much for having me here. I'm still waiting for my first award. I, you know, um, I'm pretty sure that Umama is going to beat me to that, but if she hasn't already, but, um, but very happy and very honored to be part of this panel. Maybe, thank you very much. I think maybe you're suffering from the fact that uh, the BRAC has been recognized again and again globally. Uh, yes. <laughs> so now I'll try to, uh, I will turn to uh, uh, Mama. And uh, you, you are in the beginning of a wonderful career and building something very ex exciting and challenging. So please. Thank you. Thank you, Bore. And thank you to the Mittal Institute for having me on this panel. Um, yeah, so like many, if not most of the panelists on this conference, I wasn't around for the Liberation War. In fact, I wouldn't have been born for two more decades. Um, so uh, I will share uh, what I can from my experiences. But my name is Umama Zillur, and I am the founder of a young feminist organization called Kotha. Uh, based in Bangladesh, and Gotha directly translates to conversation. Um, if anyone was able to tune in to the last panel, Gotha was uh, kind of a product of rage at a lot of the issues that were discussed in the last panel, at a, at a society that really treated the culture of gender-based violence as a normal part of the Bangladeshi culture. And so um, we are focused on primary interventions to tackle this culture of gender-based violence. So really looking at the root causes and trying to attack those. And one of our main focus areas is education-based interventions. Um, we've been trying to popularize comprehensive sexuality education that is trying to, um, that is trying to help people rethink ideas of masculinity and femininity as we understand in Bangladesh and um, really work with the youngest of the, you know, uh, young in Bangladesh. Um, and the way that we've been working is also trying to engage young people at every level of our work from product, uh, you know, program design to delivery to, you know, holding decision-making power. So that's kind of the model that we've been working with. Alongside that, I also um, uh, I've been working as a research associate at the <coughs> and Participation Research Center, PPRC. Um, and there also I've been focusing on uh, issues of urban poverty, urban dynamics with a gender lens. So, yeah. And uh, lastly, of course, um, I've also had the privilege of working alongside some of the uh, you know, leading women's rights activists, feminists in the country uh, since the founding of Feminists Across Generations Alliance, uh, which Shane Hoff mentioned in the last um, last panel. So that's also been something new that we've been trying to build together for more collective action against gender-based violence in the country. Thank you. Thank you, Mama. You are really, as uh, also understood from the previous session, you're really addressing very key questions. And uh, now we have uh, discussed, uh, in, in preparing ourselves, we have discussed a number of questions to address, to address and I will now uh, mention them briefly and then give each one of you some seven, eight minutes uh, to, to discuss rather freely and choose what you find most interesting. A key question is, of course, what role do you think that civil society, civil society has played in Bangladesh? Unexpected economic growth and human development and women's empowerment. Can you discuss further the specific role, the amazing role of, of, uh, of NGO civil society 
In what aspects of the Bangladeshi miracle did civil society cooperate with the public sector and the private sector? How have they impacted on the performance of government? How have you affected government, your work? What impact has civil society had on the development of Bangladeshi democracy? In what domains of Bangladesh development could or should civil society play a more significant role, even more significant role? And what role should civil society play or need to play going forward? We know that the challenges are huge. I just mentioned in passing climate change, which is certainly something that you have to address. So would you please, again, shall we start with Safrula and ask you to use some seven, eight minutes to, to, to address whatever you find most challenging for you among those questions? I think that Bangladesh miracles, main reason is the women's development. And in this development, one person's name, I think, it needs to be, you may remember Dr. Sattar, uh, Alan Sattar uh, was his wife. Do you remember? Alan Sattar is a lady who introduced in Bangladesh to give the girls scholarship. He said to buy their time right. for the domestic work and in his day, they should come to school. And I think that is the beginning of big impact on that year. Following the same tradition, the subsequent governments, they make the girls' education free, books free and other. So I think that is the really most important work they did. But on the other side, uh, but uh, uh, this, is, uh, this it also helps in our industry, as the girls and the local, uh, local industries and other, this plays a very important role. Our, unfortunately, in democratic process, or another thing, uh, in Ziauraman's time, he made a women's commission. I was a member of that commission. When we all wanted the all primary school teachers should be women who opposed, it is a senior women's leader. This another, it doesn't look good. I said, look, even if you make it 100%, it will take you 50 years to become 50% of these school teachers and other. These, these are the, uh, and secondly, family planning. Women played a great role in the family planning. In Bangladesh, young women were sh shown how with a short training they could even operate. Ganesha Sakandar showed thousands of mini leparatomy, the village women. In one of the English newspapers, made a front page news, cannot read or write but can operate, L plate surgeon. Then said, published a very important article of that. So these are the, the women's power. The people started to realize if you open the door for the women, it benefits both family and the country. So that is, I think, really the other most. But on the other side, as they were making the progress, government did not take the full opportunity. They did not give the full opportunity. Now, as the mechanization coming, women were not been trained. They cannot become a supervisor. They cannot. They are become a worker, not the managers. But our target have to be like you see, Swedish. You mentioned one thing: all the technical schools were were created with the Swedish help. Even while you were here, these are all male. I said no, make it for the female. That still has not yet happened. I think really then, as people would see, men would see by the side. A, a, a girl, women who are equally effective and can do, can laugh and smile as easily as he can, that will bring the changes. Uh, changes. So I think here in democratic world we have NGOs, we have failed. I'm sorry, we did not put. We all have tried to avoid the politics. Without politics, country cannot change. And uh, today, really, you see, there is no democracy in the country. It is, the, it is the bureaucracy is controlling everything. So the, this uh, women's development has become stagnant. I think for this, you have to have a very imaginative, like the, take the case an example, like the medical doctors. They are all upper class people, as children of upper class, they are becoming. Here I was pushing that a small percentage 
maybe four or five percent are like nurses and health workers should be allowed to admit into medical school. That brings a, a new changes, you see. Uh, so these are the we are not, cannot think. We are happy now. We have reached a certain state, but our disparities still enhance. And these are the things we have to look at very seriously. And there's a social disparity. Is in, and another part, I, the tremendous corruption in the country. It is a bureaucracy is controlling the uh, controlling the democracy and expansion of the corruption that might destroy us thank you thank you yes and certainly agree that it was important to to highlight corruption even though it's a sad story i, I was actually checking transparency international's index yesterday and i think that Bangladesh was rated 140 or so among 180 countries. So again, it, it makes it uh, again rather remarkable that you have been able to achieve what you have achieved over the years and, and managed to, to, uh, to, to, to steer through very complex periods uh, politically the way you have done. May I now, uh, for a change, talk to, talk, uh, turn to Umama, please, and then Shamran. I was expecting uh, the no. similar, <laughs> but I can go ahead. Um, Okay, so as mentioned already, I don't think uh, I'm expected to give a historical overview of, you know, the evolution of civil society, so I won't go there. Um, I guess I will talk mostly about civil society and the role of women's empowerment. But before that, just a general comment, I think, just from seeing, um, seeing uh, adults around me in the field of economics or, you know, social activists, women's activists, I did see much more, um, you know, a more hunger for collective action and joint action before within the civil society landscape than I do in today's world. Um, right now, people who are working at NGOs, working at um, uh, similar spaces. Uh, so that's just a general comment that I think I, I make from my personal experience. Um, in terms of um, areas where we saw real change and progress for women's empowerment, I think those areas, uh, they were only possible for areas where there was state commitment alongside NGO resources and uh, NGO mobilization and, uh, you know, relying on their governance structure and service channels. So the state commitment, I think, was really necessary. And some uh, some areas that Zafrullah Chaudhary uh, already mentioned, uh, 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 fertility rates and family planning, right? So in terms of health, um, reducing the fertility rate, decreasing mortality rate, where uh, civil society has played an outstanding role in, uh, in, in achieving those. Uh, and then also in terms of health, uh, this was you know, mentioned in yesterday's panel as well, uh, primary education enrollment, and even now secondary education enrollment of girls has been um, uh, doing really well, and you know we met our goals even before uh, even before the end of the MDG era. So for both of these, it required state commitment alongside NGO resources. But I think one critique that I will make, um, of course, can be debated that these did not come from a place of commitment to women's choice and agency and didn't come from centering women, but came from using women as instruments to meet larger national development goals and you know, state goals that we had. So for fertility rate, um, I know right now we can talk about it in the framework of reproductive rights, but I, I think that would be a miscategorization. I think that was more about population control. That was more about you know, serving the need that a state had to uh, control the population in, in Bangladesh after liberation and very little to do with giving women agency and rights about how to control their life. Um, and, and the effects of that we see even now today um, in my research as well, I've seen. Um, and I think this lack of commitment to center women in the fight for women's empowerment um, can maybe help to some extent explain some of the more persistent problems that we haven't been able to address, a lot of which have been mentioned, um, like gender-based violence and fear of gender-based violence that just persists and continues to persist. So even, you know, even if you are not 
uh, a victim of rape, or even if you're not a victim of sexual harassment, there is always that fear, uh, whether you are, and I won't even say when you step out into the streets, I will say whether you are at home, whether you're in your school, in your classroom, whether you're out on the streets, whether it's day or night, it does not matter. That fear of violence is something that women and girls and gender minorities in this country have to carry with them that civil society hasn't been able to address, I think, um, enough and as much as they would have liked to. Um, and alongside that, so I can also, you know, intimate partner violence yesterday, uh, Sajid Amin very briefly mentioned, we have, um, regardless of urban rural areas, we have one of the highest intimate partner violence rates in the country. Two out of three women, ever married women, will have faced some form of violence by their own husbands. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the main reports by Bangladesh Bureau of Statistics shows that women consider their husbands' homes to be the most, um, you know, most dangerous place for them in the country. So that really says something about the, uh, the state of this issue for Bangladesh and Bangladeshi women. Um, of course, child marriage is another issue. So I think all of these I'm mentioning because at the root of it is, a simil is the same problem. As at the root of it is this um, you know, lack of commitment by uh, the government to challenge patriarchal structures. So when we're talking about health and education, the examples I mentioned at the beginning, those were very much about service and access to service. And it was, it was possible for, um, you know, to get women engaged in those without challenging or without causing much disruption in the societal structure that we have in place, without um, without shifting a lot of the social norms that we have in place. But in order to actually really change gender-based violence and the issue that we have, we need to cause those disruptions. And we haven't seen that. And that requires more energy from the civil society. Of course, it requires collective action, but also at the end of the day, it needs state commitment, which we have not seen. Um, uh, and I think this was mentioned in the last panel as well, that we really need to prioritize and center women and girls and their safety um, in this fight if we're going to see any big changes. Um, I guess I can stop there. Do I? And, and again, you the way you highlight this, uh, the question of uh, violence uh, against women is so mm -hmm. given the, the, the earlier uh, uh, session, uh, it's yeah. so uh, striking that it's also linked to gang gang rapes and it uh, yes absolutely. absolutely that's where the state commitment also comes in i think um so yeah it's linked to the political culture exactly and they have protection uh, from different interests so it seems to be uh, at the core in a in a way of of, of, the, of the political culture something that you obviously need to address even more head on and and then you come return to that later the question of, of mobilization rather than not yet providing services education but mobilizing and but that's for, for later now i'd like to turn to thank you I'd like to turn to shamaran please thank you very much um so of course i also wasn't there during liberation and i was born i think about exactly a decade <laughs> after um but having grown up with uh, with someone who was part of the, the development um movement uh, and the NGO movement since since independence. I mean, my, you know, my sense is that, you know, in, in, you know, obviously, you know, there was a big civil society and student movement that led to li the liberation of Bangladesh, right? And in the, in the post-liberation era, obviously, a lot of that uh, channeled itself into, into all of these, a lot of these people moving into uh, creating civil society organizations to, to, to devote themselves to development work. Um, now, Bangladesh's civil society organizations, I think, um, you know, separate from you know, other countries, didn't limit themselves to just holding government accountable uh, and working on issues of rights. I mean, obviously, there are many civil society organizations that did that. But I think one of the things about the Bangladeshi civil society movement was that you know, these large NGOs are, at that time, not large, but over, over the time, the ones that grew, got into direct service delivery themselves. So to your first question, Boye, I mean, about how the civil society organizations contributed to economic growth and human development, mm -hmm. I think what we do find is that, you know, um, you know, typically in most countries, even most countries in our region, 
if you look at this, the, the civil society movement, it, it's mostly on holding government accountable. But in our country, you know, civil society organizations became huge service delivery organizations, providing education, providing health, providing agriculture extension and agricultural development, uh, providing microfinance. Uh, and that has been a big part of the story. So on that front, I think the civil society organizations have played a huge role uh, in the development of the country, in human development, even though, I mean, you know, I thought I'd leave something for the, for the next panel, which is there is a long way to go on many of those things. Um, on the um, on the accountability front and on the issue of your next question of how have we done in terms of promoting democracy, I think there there is this this issue of you know how outspoken can you be? How much do you want to take a direct role in in being you know in holding you know politicians to account? Because that, does that then impede the work you do actually on service delivery, on health and education? And that's been a that and that has sort of created two classes of NGOs in Bangladesh, I think. Some which have been more focused on service delivery and some which have been more focused on holding governments, governments and politicians to account. And I think both those have, I mean, there's been a lot of progress made by both sets of you know, civil society organizations over the last 50 years. And there's been a lot of progress made. I mean, we heard even in the last panel, even despite all of the challenges, I mean, if you look at what the role of women in society was in, in the 1970s to where we are now, there has been a lot of progress. Mm. Um, um, couple of things, couple of additional things I'll say. Um, I think, I think Umama is right in the sense that I think maybe this, the, the civil society organizations could have done more to put women at the center of, of development. I mean, I mean, we all did that, but she's right. Maybe the, uh, you know, the, the main motivation was to fix a problem that was other than, put it, other than women's agency. But having said that, a lot of the work that happened did lead to increased agency for women. And that is, some, that is a debate I think we can always get into. One of the things that my late father used to say is that a lot of the conscientization and mobilization that the NGO sector did in the 70s and 80s led to the fact that once Bangladesh had this large garments industry, most of the workers of Bangladesh's garments factories were women, right? And that is very different from the garments factories of India or Pakistan or Sri Lanka, where by far the most, I mean, the high, you know, by far most of the workers are men. And the fact that the civil society organizations brought women out of their homes and got them more linked to markets and more linked to economic activity also led to that kind of, so, you know, to that, to that happening. Of course, we have a lot of issues around rights and fair pay and, and work environments and all of that. But, you know, that, that, that foundational work was done by the NGOs, you know, by the NGOs in the 70s and 80s. And, and that has played a big part in even sort of the, the you know, in the economic, um, the economic uh, development of this country. Um, so, you know, um, where have we fell short? I mean, I think you've asked a really good question and I think Dr. Choudhury has al already said this. I think on the, on, the, on, you know, on the democracy front, I think we have a lot of challenges. Um, how the, the NGO sector works through these problems, how we continue to serve people, the poorest people through, through graduation programs and microfinance and provide health and education and how we can continue to do that, but at the same time, make sure that our voice uh, is raised when we see issues of, of injustice, uh, when we see issues of rights violations is something we've got to have a real soul search on because right now I think that is somewhere where we, we as, a, as a sector, we are falling short. I saw a question on there that's putting me on a little bit on the spot with that. Uh, and I think that is something we have to own up and say, maybe we've got to think about how we play a bigger role in, in that. But definitely in terms of the human development of the people of Bangladesh, whether it's health or education or financial services, the role that microfinance organizations, uh, non-microfinance NGOs, and even the rights-based NGOs have played, have made a huge, huge contribution to the country. And I'll end by saying that I think it's worth mentioning that for most of our history, the government actually did allow NGOs to play a big part in our development. Um, 
And again, this is very, I mean, our, our experience, and this is very different from many other countries. And now that we work in several other countries in Asia and Africa, we see how difficult it is for, for civil society organizations to play, play a role in the development of a country, even on basic things like providing healthcare and education and, and, and financial services. So, so the, you know, the successive governments in Bangladesh, both military and civil, democratic and undemocratic, they did allow the NGOs to grow and become large and play a big role. And I think that needs to be highlighted. Now, whether that will continue, uh, whether, you know, whether now we are being, whether now civil society space is, is, is shrinking and whether we can continue to play a part in the future is, remains to be seen. Uh, and obviously we have some serious concerns about that, but historically that has been, that the government has enabled civil society organizations to play a part and that has of course led to these large civil society organizations in Bangladesh that have become globally known. Um, so I think we should also just highlight that. Um, thank you. Thank you. You are, you are all uh, describing uh, a, a story which is exceedingly fascinating how you have managed to cope and maintain your role under different circumstances. And, you, and you, um, I listened to Hamida before, and she talked about uh, the authoritarian character of government, the uh, actual one-party system and so forth. And, and uh, there are many worrying uh, issues to, to be addressed as regards the governance and corruption and so forth. Uh, and, and still you have succeeded, but. Uh, when it comes to what you touched upon now, Shaman, uh, and also all of you actually, the, the, how can you contribute to a deepening of democracy? I mean, it, you can easily uh, cause a, a, a tough reaction if you go too far, obviously. And, but so far you have managed well, but can you widen the scope? Can you mobilize more? Can you make deep, deepen the involvement of, of, of the local government, uh, the way Shireen discussed about it, uh, and uh, women's involvement and so forth through education and the way Mama mentioned? Can you, can you see a way of, of widening the scope and, and creating a, a governance structure which is more transparent and has more trust among people? Who would like to address it first? Safula, please. Uh, it's, uh, <clears throat> I, I think really we have to be careful. Our civil society, with the uh, political parties, they should not think we are a competitor for them. But we are, uh, we, we are the NGOs, are, we are helping the government. We are for the people, for the public and others. Here is one main impediment in Bangladesh, is the centralizations. Political parties, they have now recently learned the lecture from living in Dhaka and controlling the whole nation, which is very dangerous. That has, that leading the country to becoming almost like a mafia state. That, that is that this too much of centralization, uh, this is the more dangerous. I, I often tell, I say, look, people should realize Soviet did not succeed. It, like I said, because it's too centralized. USSR has been, hey, uh, so we also really need to give people more power. People should decide they can deal how it. Uh, this is really, it, it is a high time. They all civil society very actively promote why Bangladesh is too big a country to be ruled from Dhaka, or the, it is a rural like Islamabad to it. So that's why this is here, NGOs have to work, but they cannot do it. The one reason, they are so dependent on the government's approval of their funds. And on the other side, our donors, now unlike your time, 70s and uh, you people use some discretion, independence, if you really think, and I think that in those days, the, our foreign donors, they were, more interested to know the country better, to know the people better. So they stood by anything, even if the government was delaying, they said, well, they persuade the government to really give us as, as really, uh, uh, as really, you know, we see really, unlike many countries, as like Shamiran was telling, we have earned it. We have earned it together, local NGOs and other, and that really, international and uh, international donors. Did you hear? I think you have to invest money so that people realize the value of this 
decentralization and democratization, like as you know, more democracy will reduce corruption because it will create accountability. Still, really, this is not yet on. So here, ideally, City consider this is very important. This change is very important. The country need to be divided into 20 states, or even what Sheikh Mujib wanted to do, 64, whatever it is, it must be divided into that. And giving them the local government locally, that will allow the many flowers to bloom. And there are new ideas. So definitely if the Bangladesh is 20 states, I'm sure some state women will be taking that. These are the areas where you see anything when there's a little bit of movement growth, government will declare, we agree. We will hang the really perpetrator. We really, hanging is not the answer. You know, like as you know, anything, those who have really held the women's uh, uh, operations and other, how many hanging have you done? And that is not the, it needs education. It needs discussion. It needs totally dearly country. It needs to be in openness. Why it is happening? Why we cannot stop the, uh, uh, the women being tortured in a bus? How difficult it is. Uh, instead of putting all the police to control the um, mass, they should put few plain cloth policemen in the buses, the public stations and other. These are the really simple things. I do not think these are very difficult. Okay, development creates really, but this is another thing. Uh, government is another, they, they are selling their certificates, achievements. They are, they, you are petting our government's back and they think we have achieved everything. You see, even this morning, I was in the hospital, we charge so little, even they cannot pay it. So what you, as you do not have a national health insurance, our government is not investing. But keeping the present structure alive, this investment will not help. I repeatedly request our Prime Minister, I say start with the village. At least where the 50,000 people live, they have got the right to see the face of a doctor for a health, basic health care. And also train the local resources, traditional birth attendants. I think they, they have got some knowledge, but now enhance their knowledge. Give them a support. So elderly care, another dearly, ideally, you have tackled. Because in the Western world, you have got elderly homes, you have really invested monies and other. But in our country, this is nothing on that. But this problem, we are going to face it very soon. So these are the really thick, and also many health care, like uh, smoking and other, you know, like uh, so I need, there's a big road is still waiting for the really NGOs. Last point that I want to make, NGOs has done great things, but they have not invested their energy and money for agriculture. Unless we involve them, the civil society, NGOs and other for agriculture, who knows the world might have someday for the food problems and famine and other might come back. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Shamran, would you, but the question of, of how uh, civil society uh, and what we say can break, can, can deepen democracy further, can you comment briefly on that? We're also going to have some questions for, uh, from the participants. Please. Yeah, sure, Borja. Uh, so I don't know if I have the answer to that question. I, and I would just say that, look, I, you know, there's a way that we've tried to do that in the past. Um, and, you know, when my you know, again, trying to channel my father a little bit. I mean, he had a certain way of doing it where he, he always felt that it was better to work behind the scenes and because he had access, to use his access to try to, uh, to uh, you know, try to, you know, say the things he needed to say rather than take a more adversarial route, right? And, and that kind of worked for him and I think it worked for Bragg. Um, now, you know how how we do it going forward. I think this. I, I think what I do agree with is that civil society organizations and civil society at large. I mean, and civil civil society is beyond just the CSOs. There is, you know, the the, the writers, the journalists, the uh, you know, all of that makes up civil society. We do have to speak for democracy and rights. Uh, there is no doubt about it. I mean, the, even the people that we work for and we work with. Uh, 
you know, they, they expect us to make sure that we work, you know, that we speak for, for these things. Now, you know, I think, I think you know, we've got to, we've got to um, convince um, politicians and governments that, you know, because we challenge certain policies and uh, we want to debate and disagree sometimes doesn't mean that we are part of some conspiracy to bring the government down. Um, it doesn't mean that we are trying, we are against this government or that government or for this party or that party. It is our work to, to make sure that, you know, the government works for the people. Uh, and I think if we, if we can be honest brokers, I think, and if we can build trust, I think we can have our voices heard. Uh, but of course, it is a difficult situation to be in right now because it is very easy as soon as you go if, say anything, it's very easy to get sort of given a label, you know, that you are, you know, anti-government or anti-liberation or anti-state even. And, and I think we've got to get beyond that. Uh, we've got to get beyond that and have, have more, you know, constructive conversations in a, in a non-adversarial way. That's what BRAC has tried to do. I think that is what we will probably continue to try to do. Um, but, you know, there is also a lot of need and a lot of space to have, to be adversarial sometimes. And I think there are lots of organizations that do that very well. And sometimes we partner with them as well. Um, but I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't not do, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that we shouldn't feel as civil society that our work is just to provide services and not to raise our voice. I think that's very important. Mm. Thank you. Uh, Imam, I would also like to address this question how you think that democracy can be de de deepened. <laughs> Sure. Um, something that you said initially when you were posing the question, you uh, you were saying, you know, how do you kind of navigate this and you can't even go too far. Um, I, I'll just pick up on that phrase of going too far. I think in very recent times, the going too far has changed its meaning drastically. And the going too far is now um, kind of uh, the things that you wouldn't consider going too far are being considered going too far. And, and like Shamir and Pai was saying, um, civil society is made up of, you know, service delivery organizations, community-based organizations, artists, activists, journalists. And so because of this changed definition of going too far, I think service delivery organizations kind of had had to take this role of, you know, without not speaking up so that they can continue providing the services. And all this burden has come on uh, the people who are usually out on the streets, the activists, journalists, writers. And I don't think that's fair. And uh, again, I will uh, bring it back to collective action, even within even within movements. Um, I was speaking about, you know, the women's rights movement, the feminist movement. I think even within this movement, we haven't had much scope for discussion, dialogue, and debate just to strengthen our our voice. Um, and I think that goes for other collectives, other alliances and networks as well within the country. Um, and I think we really need to work, do that internal work as well uh, and strategize in order to figure out how we can how we can raise our voice and be effective. Um, yeah, I think I'll end there. Uh, and, and just lastly, also just, I think civil society uh, in Bangladesh used to have a very strong voice in shaping discourse, uh, whether it's the development discourse, whether it's women's empowerment, women's rights agenda, and that kind of has been fading as well. And I think that's an area that we need, uh, we need to work on as well. That sounds, sounds very serious. Uh, <laughs> that space has been shrinking. Uh, we have some time left. I'm trying to to uh, wave, wave some questions into to the dialogue, but I I would also very much like us to to address maybe the most crucial question that you you are facing as a nation that you are going to face as a nation the challenge, and that is climate change. Can you see what kind of roles do you see for civil society, and, and can you can you see that you can cooperate with government here to create? Uh, because you have managed. I remember the floods of '74. After that, you developed the capacity to, to cope with floods, which I think has been not understood fully, even though the population has grown doubled. But now climate change it's it's not caused by you, but you are the victim. Uh, and so, how how can it be? Be, be uh, how can it be brought up in the agenda uh, at a level required by realities? Who would like to start? Safrullah, are you you're ready? Uh, okay. 
I think we are the victims of climate change, that's true, but we have got other responsibilities. Ideally, you see, when the Rohingyas came in 1978 first, I said, look, we must be realistic. We are like, really, like NGOs, we are not only for the, to provide them the service, we are also guarding their, their rights and other. We should also take the risk to, to safeguard people's rights one have to have certain uh, uh, problems and certain daily comments, anger and other. Even then, we must really stand them. We must speak up for their for the restoration of their rights. Illegal work, their, 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 our legal systems failure. About the climate change in '78, I said, look, we must be realize this issue will not be solved in two three months time. So allow that really a couple of years that they are going to stay. While they are here, they will cut our forest. The, for survival reasons, they have to cut the forest. They need firewood. So allow them to cut the forest. At the same time, allow them to plant trees. Every family is to give them opportunity to plant five, five trees and look after that and other. Similarly, for the climate change and other give them the educations, educations, give them the other facilities. Unfortunately, every government thinks they are going to solve the problem in a couple of months. So, same thing, this time also, I repeatedly request the government, I said, please, they will be deforestation, help them, their party to it, to restoration of their things. Similarly, our rivers and other, here is one thing we are failing, India's attitude. India is not really helping. They give it nice talk, but they, they don't stop. They killing our people in the border. They do not solve the problem of water resources. Water resources for the world to survive, we have to share. We have to share with each, each other. So like that sort of thing really is. I think really for climate change, another thing is important at the education. We must educate our people and understand whole global problem. Ordinary people must understand why they really, like in the Sudan and other, they have got the night, they do not have agriculture. How we can cooperate with each other. So that is why really I think uh, you, uh, like uh, the, our international donors, now the, you should not wash up your hands as we have become a new status. At least these are the sectors you should really give education. Education in various sectors, education, healthcare, and humanity. I think this is the question of humanity, just the survival of the earth. Shamran, mm, mm, mm. would you uh, would you say that when it comes to the the public discourse that we that Umama referred to, can you can you contribute to making climate change and these huge issues a part of the role that you play, or is that something that you think? Is, is, is beyond what, what, how you define your role now and in the future? No, I think we, we do play a role in that. And I think that discourse is more global than national, right? I mean, you know, we are not a, we, we don't, uh, you know, our issue is not mitigation as much as adaptation. Um, but we do, we do bring up the, 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 the issues that Bangladesh is facing and will continue to face over the next several decades because of climate change. And I think, I think we as an organization, we, we, do, uh, we do play that role. Uh, I know we sit on quite a few of the commissions, we, we turn up at the COP meetings and we try to do that. Um, in our country, obviously, I mean, we have a, we have a slow onset disaster coming with the, with the rising sea levels, with the, the increasing salinity of water in the Southern Belt, with the, with the loss of arable land with, and that's going to lead to an in, internal migration of people from the south into the cities. Um, uh, and it's going to lead to internal displacement and more rapid urbanization. So I think those are all issues that we as, as, you know, as a civil society organizations, we need to, I mean, we've already been working on it for a long time and we need to continue to work on that. And there are many aspects of that from mm -hmm. agriculture that is saline resistant to, um, to finding people new jobs and, and new homes and, and uh, you know, new livelihoods. So we are very much on that. We're very much working across many elements of that. Mm. Yeah. 
So it's, it's very unfair. I mean, you have managed to address so many challenging issues, uh, but now climate change is brought on all of us, and you are not the cause at all, but you are an early victim. Uh, because of of, uh, na of nature and geography, and I was actually involved in discussion just yesterday uh, uh, about uh, c uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Of course, now uh, China is causing twenty eight percent of emissions this way today. Uh, and, but uh, and they have also but they also defined new targets uh, to be, become carbon neutral by 2060. And the American administration, the Biden, has defined new goals and EU and so forth. And there is a major meeting in Glasgow in November. But to me, I, I cannot resist but mention it because I think every other issue is is going to be secondary. And that's my question to Umama. Uh, you are <laughs> you are a young person who envy, envy you for, for that as well, uh, and you will. Uh, experience this and your children will very much ex uh, experience this uh, have you what what's your thought on this subject you know uh, beyond also your own organization's work but as a uh, bangladeshi female intellectual <clears throat> maybe i won't be around for, <laughs> for <laughs> how it plays out actually um uh, so i think i'm going to uh, bring this back to the earlier conversations that i was having whether it's climate change or urbanization for the case of bangladesh for all emerging um problems that we have i think we need to rethink how we've been working till now especially um especially with women and how we've been thinking about women's empowerment i think it would be very important to broaden the definition beyond um just you know service opportunities for women broaden the definition beyond uh, thinking of empowerment as women as users of services and to really um really look at them uh, as as the center of how we design interventions and programs um and move away from band-aid solutions i think climate change is something that we really can't afford to have band-aid solutions for and really uh attack the root of so i think those would be the areas that I would focus on, not just for climate change, but other emerging problems as well. We thank you. We have got a few minutes left now, and I have failed a bit. I feel when it comes to uh, uh, picking up the questions uh, from all, all, all the participants, I have brought some into our discourse, but uh, forgive me for that. But I hope that you think that we have uh, addressed uh, major issues. I want to address one point, one, one so, sentence. Sorry, please. Can I can I can I add one sentence? I think really climate changes is one reason. It's a, our the local contribution is this is the centralization. So people are leaving village and other for jobs and other going to that. So where more emissions, more uh, hazards are increasing. For this reason, to stop the rapid uh, urbanization, it will be very useful if our local governments and local structures, they have been helped, they have been promoted, so the people will be this, then in, 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 you know, that will help to some extent to contain the uh, climate changes, effects of climate changes. Thank you. And, and uh, I hope that I have, uh, 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 that we have uh, in our discourse uh, confirmed uh, the, the very, idea the role the positive role that uh, NGO society is is playing in, in Bangladesh and I think it all through my experience over 50 years this has been my most positive uh, uh, experience which witness the work that you have done and the, what you have created and uh, and also now a new generation like mama emerging and a shoulder this role so I think that has been wonderful and I'm not not trying to summarize but only say that uh, you, you matter a lot and even more in the future Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Warrior. Thank you.